bees, ha 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 ha, whatever. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Riverdale Recap Podcast. Today we will be talking about the 16th episode of Riverdale's Season 5, Band of Brothers. I'm Mary Kwiatkowski and I am joined today by no one. This is going to be a weird podcast. I'm recording it now, but I'm not even sure how we're going to format it when it's released. So for all I know, maybe you'll hear us mixed in. I am in San Francisco this weekend and so I couldn't take a microphone, couldn't record live with Kirsten, but Kirsten and I are both recording separately, and then either this podcast is going to be, you know, part me and then part her, or I'm going to splice them together. Not sure yet, because I don't have her audio. But anyway, just me today, so it's going to be a little bit different. Sorry if the quality is different than expected. I wasn't able to record before I left, so you're listening to me just talking into my laptop in San Francisco. Awesome. Hi friends, it is me, Kirsten, but you knew that already, and I'm here to, you know, do my half of the Dikowski cast for the week. Now, I think we can all agree, after having watched this episode, that this was the worst possible time for Mary to miss recording with me to run a marathon, because a lot happened. But uh, I'm sure that she broke everything down really well in her half, so I'm just gonna go through it. I'm gonna talk about what I care about, what I don't care about, I might skip. I don't know. Anyways, this is my first solo podcast so strap in we're gonna we're gonna talk about Riverdale season 5 episode 16 a band of brothers got a lot going on, starting with my favorite thing, because let's be honest, in Kirsten's part, she's certainly not going to read the Jughead voiceover. So let's have that happen on my end. Our old pal turned superstar Josie McCoy had come and gone, leaving us all to our haunted existences, no one more so than Archie Andrews. The guilt over the deaths of his platoon members hanging on him like a shroud, Veronica Lodge was also being haunted by a flesh and blood mistake from her past. Okay, Okay, I just have a couple things to talk about right off the bat in terms of this voiceover. I love that they added the line about (laughs) our superstar pal Josie McCoy had come and gone because having that one line in right there is really the only thing that ties this episode even remotely to the last one. We all knew that the last episode was kind of just a bottle episode, so that line's really the only thing that links them together. Okay, I don't know how much we've mentioned this because it's happened a couple times, but Archie has been seeing sort of visions of his platoon members in these kind of hallucinations. Although his platoon members, so they're in the army garb and usually covered in blood or bullet holes or whatever. And he's seeing them just sort of in the background. It's kind of haunting him, but they're not like zombies creepily, you know, running up to him or anything like that. They're just kind of in the background. And so he's going to see a lot of his platoon members throughout this episode, but he's been seeing them for the last couple as well. We haven't really mentioned it as much. I think we said he had hallucinations, so that's kind of been happening. So I guess first I'll, I'll I'll zoom through the Archie of it all because I don't care. So basically what I had said a couple episodes ago is that I did not trust this show to treat PTSD well. And I think that I can uh, confirm that they did that because basically they framed that Archie's PTSD was actually just his guilt and that he could, you know, soothe his guilt by um, taking care of General Taylor. So basically he finds out that crusty old man is getting a full salute and like retiring with honors and he's pissed because he's literally a war criminal. So why is this 
this man and getting full honors. So basically, he decides that he is going to bring forward a military tribunal to try and get him dishonorably discharged. There's a lot of drama. Eric is like, oh, but you might re-traumatize people. Oh, but also I had orders on that mission. And so I could also get in trouble. Archie goes on like a, a tour talking to all the families of the people who died in the mission, uh, which are very unnatural and weird. They have a whole tribunal and get a verdict all in this episode. So again, the timing of this show makes absolutely no sense, but I am pretty sure that General Taylor is going to end up having played some role in that like alien slash army base theory of what we had. So it took up a lot of the episode, this Archie plot line, but like... I didn't care for it. It was very boring. I feel like they are, once again, not handling, like, actual issues well. And it was, uh, it was an Archie, it was an Archie plotline that happened. So I'm not going to talk about him anymore. So we, <laughs> we love to see it. So let's start off with the Archie plotline, which is army trials. Like I said, he's still seeing his dead platoon members everywhere, and he's angry about something in the newspaper, which he calls the Brave and True. Is the Brave and True a real thing? I couldn't find it anywhere, but I is that is this a close but no cigar on some sort of other newspaper? Is there like a all-military newspaper or something? Let me know if that's a thing. But he's really upset because General Taylor, who we knew from a few episodes ago, I think it's been a while now, but earlier on in the season, we found out that Archie's general had sent him on this like rogue mission and that resulted in a lot of the deaths, but it wasn't like a sanctioned mission or it was, you know, clearly something that General Taylor was doing for his own gain. And so we know in the past that General Taylor has been threatening Archie with like Archie wanting to come forward about the truth, but Archie is now angry because the paper is saying that General Taylor is retired with full honors. And the New York Times reporter who had previously come to Archie and said that she was going to like take care of the situation apparently got her story killed by her editor because there wasn't enough evidence about his dirty missions to be going off of. So obviously Archie's really upset about this and he wants to go public with the news, but Eric tells him to just let it go and move on because there's really nothing to be gained from this. And Archie keeps worrying about it. So Frank asks him like, what really happened? on this army mission that is haunting him so much. And we've heard bits and pieces before, mostly about bingo, but as it turns out, he said he was ordered into a fire zone to deliver medical supplies to civilians. But but it turns out that was just a cover-up to take down a warlord in that region. And Archie pushed back against Taylor and didn't want to do it, said it was a suicide mission, but Taylor didn't back down, so Archie just caved in and did what he was told. They were all in trenches, but they couldn't get a signal to call for help, so Archie scouted out to higher ground to make the call, but when he got back, most of his platoon was dead, except Eric, who had his leg blown off, and Bingo, who was stuck out in no man's land. So Archie, for some reason, does the superhero move of, like, going to the bad guy (laughs) and trying to convince the bad guy to just, like, turn himself in, which, of course, doesn't work. General Taylor instead says that he's going to go public and say that Archie was the one who went rogue and led his man into an ambush and that it was going to be his word against Taylor's. So Archie's obviously very upset with this. 
and he still wants to go public because he said he just can't sit on the truth and keep it silent any longer. Eric is continuing to push back and tells him that this is now, you know, him going to this trial is going to potentially open up a lot of old wounds for the soldiers' families. So Archie's idea is that he's going to go around and talk to these soldiers' families and sort of like get their okay. And he has mixed results. The first person he goes to is someone named Travis's, I believe, mother, hard to tell. And she actually blames Archie for not bringing Travis back alive. So that's really hard to hear. And then Archie goes and talks to another young guy. I'm not really sure who, but somebody who is associated with Jim. And he ends up saying like that he will support Archie because Jim had sent him a bunch of letters talking very highly about Archie. And then Archie talks to someone named Aiden's wife. And she says that she has made peace with what happened, needs to concentrate on her son, but she tells him to go and do what he sees fit. So mixed messages. I'm not really sure like what the whole point of this plot was because it's not really like we we get all of this build up but spoilers we're not even gonna see the trial we're not even gonna see the trial we just see Archie and Eric go to the trial and which Eric eventually ends up doing he says that he like was worried about testifying at first because General Taylor had also called him in and like gave him a sniper mission to do to take down this warlord and so he felt that he betrayed his platoon by not helping out more and but he ends up going with Archie and they get a call later on from the judge advocate general who says that Eric is all good, he's been forgiven, and that Taylor is going to be just discharged without honors. So everything works out, but we have like a lot of scenes of this that kind of didn't really serve a purpose. Like some of the family members were pro-Archie speaking out, some were against it, but we didn't even get to see them actually do it. So surprise, surprise, all in all, not my favorite plot line. Like it was pretty straightforward and just really more serves to show like Archie's a really good guy, whatever. And I think the bigger picture here is that this is like going to be a coping mechanism that Archie is doing in order to move past some of his personal trauma from this mission and I assume some of the guilt associated with it. I feel like this is like a little bit retroactive. I could have sworn that in the beginning when we first heard about this mission when Archie gets discharged and Eric does that like Archie had lost some men but also saved a lot but then now it seems like the only person he saved was Eric so I'm not really sure about that but by the end of the episode Eric, Archie, and Frank all cheers to the fallen band of brothers, hence the episode title. And we see all the men sitting in a booth in the corner and they are no longer in army gear and like bloody this time, but just the normal members of Archie's platoon. So I guess he's still seeing them, but they're no longer haunting him. He's just like remembering them. So that's, that's nice, you know, typical Archie plotline. Another plot line in this episode that was absolutely cuckoo bananas was Cheryl and Kevin in the cult, but it was funny. So at the start of the episode, Cheryl's wearing pink, which is weird, and Kevin is in a Technicolor dream coat because they are going to perform a song from Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat. And Penelope comes up and is like, Jason has commanded no more singing, which is so funny because you know she's just like, she wanted to start like an honest to goodness cult. And Cheryl and Kevin have turned it into a, a Broadway performance. And so you know she's just pissed about it. So I laughed very hard at that one. But Kevin's pissed, of course, because he's lost yet another opportunity to perform. And he is like, Cheryl, you have to prove that you are the highest authority in the cult so that basically they can keep singing um, so he can have fun and be a creative director. And he's like, you know, if you do three miracles, you could be named a saint, which I feel like is this cult maybe taking too much from like other religions or is she just, you know, leaning into that higher power? I don't know. But 
but she will perform three magic tricks basically over the course of this episode. The first one she does is she, she turns water into maple syrup. Like Jesus turned water into wine. I was very uncomfortable because she's calling Kevin brother Kevin, which is weird to me. That, I, I don't know how that magic trick works. I wonder if Mary knows how that magic trick works. I, I'd love to hear from her on that one. You know, if she does three miracles, she'll get Saint So that's one miracle down. Her next miracle is that her hands are like bleeding for everybody's sins. I don't really understand, first of all, how she did this. Second of all, how it's a miracle. Third of all, why? Like, it, I, like here's what I wrote in quotes. Her hands are bleeding, mimicking the holy wounds of Jesus. And I just wrote, excuse me? Like, ma'am, no. What are you talking about? You know, like just bizarre. This is where Cheryl's like, oh, okay, don't worry. I have an idea for my third miracle. Do you remember when I got revenge on Mr. Honey for not letting me have my back to school party? And the answer is no, Cheryl. I do not remember this. Uh, I'm sure I podcasted about it. And based on context clues from the rest of this episode, I was able to determine that it was involving bees, you know, very funny because his name was Mr. Honey and then she used bees. Ha 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 ha. Whatever. But it's fine. So Kevin is like hesitant about the bees because he is severely allergic to them. So I think that that's a valid concern that he has. So I, I also don't think he should have been in the room when the bees were there because he's allergic. But I guess if he's not there, then it like brings up questions of, oh, do you not trust that Cheryl like is going to protect you from the bees? So I guess he was stuck between a rock and a hard place. But her third miracle is taming the bees. And so she basically just like has her hands out and there's just like bees swarming around them. Like she's some kind of superhero that can throw bees at you. And it's so bizarre because Penelope is like, this isn't real. Like, don't listen to her. Blah, blah, blah. And Kevin's like, who are you going to trust? Cheryl, who shared the womb with Jason Blossom? Or Penelope, who's a whoremonger and a scaped convict? Now, we've been through this before. We actually say, um, we don't call people whores. Like, that's, um, it's, that's over. So I really wish that Kevin had done better uh, with that. But that's what he called her. And Cheryl's like, you need to leave, mom, or I will smite you because I am queen of the bees. This came out of nowhere. Um, but you know what? Sure, whatever. I don't care. Then towards the end of the episode, we see Cheryl and Kevin one more time. And Kevin's like, how did you keep the bees like off of you? Did you have like an ointment on your hands? She's like, no, I had no ointment anywhere on my body. Something inside me has shifted, Kevin. Something powerful. Something I can't explain. But I'm feeling more connected to things than I have in years. And so she basically is like, maybe I'm really a saint. But no, Cheryl, you're a witch. We know you're a witch. It's very clear that you are a witch. And uh, Chilling Adventures is a Sabrina also indicated that you may be a witch. So I think Cheryl's a witch and I just want to know why she never had to write her name in the like book of the devil like all the witches in uh, Greendale had to do. So that's my question. Uh, we also found out that Cheryl's middle name is Marjorie and I don't know if we knew that before but I just felt like that was important information that we needed to have at this time, you know? I feel like doing uh, this solo means that uh, I'm just going to blow through all the plot lines. It's going to be like 20 minutes. So I hope you are all in the mood for a uh, a shorter pod this week. I don't know how long Mary took, but I know Mary was in a hurry. It's tough times.
It's time for Three Miracles, the tiny little Cheryl and Kevin plot. I know I've said this like every single episode, but I'm never going to stop being annoyed that instead of just making Cheryl and Kevin bigger characters, they just feel obligated to like throw them into a little tiny subplot together. I don't know why, but I feel like some of the smaller characters like Tabitha or Eric, like they feel like bigger ones because they're just sort of more consistently there, whereas it feels so shoe with Cheryl and Kevin because they not only like have to have a designated plot to themselves, but it's to themselves and like no one else ever enters that universe. It makes me think about how at this point it must be so annoying to be like an actor on this show and not get really to interact with that many people. Like you basically have your assigned person that you're always with. Like at this point, Archie is with Eric and that's it. Veronica is with Reggie and her dad and that's it. (laughs) Betty is usually alone, but sometimes with Tabitha are with Jughead and that's really all they get to do. And Cheryl and Kevin just really only get to be in each other's plot lines. So this, this whole thing makes no sense. I don't understand where we're going with any of this. If this doesn't have like a higher purpose, oh look at me talking about the religious plot line as having a higher purpose. If this doesn't have a higher purpose in wider respect to someone else's plot, I'm going to be really annoyed because it just seems so random. But Cheryl and Kevin are getting ready to sing according to them, a medley from Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, but they don't even get to do it, which I think I'm gonna guess uh, Kirsten was so happy about that she didn't have to get another musical number. So she starts singing, but then Penelope dramatically stops them and says that Jason commands no more singing. And like, Cheryl's upset about this, but since when is Cheryl the head of the ministry? I thought this was like Penelope's thing that she started in prison and then she brought out and it's like, it's her thing and Cheryl just randomly got involved with it and I thought even more so that Cheryl was just kind of like going along with her mom but now there's like this big feud where Cheryl needs to show her mom that she's the head of the ministry but she's not and so Kevin tells Cheryl that she needs to upstage her mother by performing three miracles in order to qualify for sainthood because I guess if Cheryl's like I'm a saint then I'm clearly the head of the ministry I don't know I don't understand any of this so Kevin says that in junior high he was obsessed with David Copperfield so that he's going to help her fake three miracles, basically. So the first one, she's going to turn water into maple syrup because she, of course, she is. And she says it's the nectar of the gods, which is just not true, but okay, go off. And then miracle number two, Cheryl is going to bleed from her hands. And uh, that's her, quote unquote, experiencing the collective pain of the congregation. (sighs) Okay, that one was kind of gruesome. And then for her third one, she says that she wants her miracle to be something with bees. And she's like really adamant on it even though Kevin says he's super allergic to bees and doesn't want her to. And she's like, no, my Nana was an avid beekeeper. She'll teach me all her ways. I don't know why she's so obsessed, like so set on this. And it was kind of a dead end here because I really thought like something was going to happen with Kevin or he was going to get stung. But no, nothing like that happens. She just sticks her hand in a tank of bees. And then Penelope is like, don't fall for her parlor tricks. And Cheryl kicks Penelope out while holding up her fists in the air that are just like swarming with bees. And then she calls herself queen of the bees. Me, like this is during a service. I don't understand what any of this did. Like I guess the thing about her like bleeding 
bleeding from the hands was like kind of biblical. I don't know how sticking your hands in a tank of bees has anything to do with anything. And I feel like it's, I don't know, that one seemed like the easiest to fake for whatever reason. But whatever, Penelope gets kicked out of the church or something. And then at the end of the episode, Cheryl and Kevin are talking and he's like, so how'd you, like, how'd you not get stung by the bees? Did you have some kind of special ointment? And she's like, no, look, I'm not saying I'm a saint, but maybe I'm just a saint. Wouldn't that be miraculous? What? (laughs) So she's just magical now? She says something inside her has shifted and she feels more connected to things than she has in years. I don't know. Kirsten, tell me, is this like, is this somehow connected with Sabrina? Is, Is she just a witch now? I don't know. I'm so upset by this whole Cheryl Kevin plotline and I really don't want to talk about it anymore because it doesn't mean anything. Like, I hope it will. I hope it'll mean something eventually, but so far it just doesn't. Okay, let's get into the plotline that I'm going to call Copter Cab. Oh, Lord, have mercy. You know, we've had a couple episodes in a row without a whole lot of Veronica plot. And for whatever reason, they decided that we just can't have nice things. They need to give us some more. I know we used to always complain about the Archie plots. And I guess sometimes they were combined with the Veronica ones. But I think now that they're separated, I'm realizing that the Archie plots are just boring. The Veronica plots are the ones that I find like most annoying and grating to have to watch. But Veronica gets a call from Chad and he says that he has some kind of get rich quick scheme that is cooking and he will get him all his money back fast. But Veronica says no, Pearls and Posh is going well and she will have legit money in a month or so and then she can divorce his ass. Her words, not mine. So then Diane Nelson from the SEC, which I had to look up. I I know this is like a phrase that I've heard before, but I am really bad with acronyms. And whenever I see an acronym in this show that I don't know, I have to look it up to make sure that it's not a close but no cigar. But anyway, it's the Securities and Exchange Commission, which I know we've looked up before because that was what I believe Chad mentioned at the beginning when she wanted to divorce him. And he was like, no, because the SEC is after us. So she calls because she wants to schedule time to review Veronica's books and finances for Pearls and Posh to make sure it's all legit, which Veronica assumes that Chad set up this call to like tip Diane Nelson off about Pearls and Posh because she denied his like help and that he just wanted to, I don't know, have a savior complex with her or something. So she comes up with a plan to steal Hiram's palladium and then she's going to auction it off. And Reggie's like, oh, well, we should call Hermosa because the two of them apparently had a thing when Veronica was in college. Now, I'm trying to remember how old Hermosa was, but safe to say, I think the age gap between her and Reggie, even though they're all adults at this point, is like a little bit a lot. I mean, I feel like, let's see, when they were in high school, so when when they were like 18, I feel like Hermosa was supposed to be like 28. I mean, maybe she wasn't. Maybe she was supposed to be like 22. I wouldn't put it past them to have her like come on as this like, I forgot what is her job. She's like a private investigator or something. And she also runs a rum business. Of course she does. So anyway, I don't really know. <laughs> like, I don't know what that was all about. But good for Reggie, I guess, for uh, <laughs> hanging with Hermosa. It's funny that Veronica like just doesn't care about her half sister at all. So she didn't know about this, but whatever. So he calls her and I guess she just tells him where the palladium is. Like we we don't get to see any of these scenes. We have a lot in this episode of people talking about what they're going to do, but then we actually don't get the exciting scene. We don't get the trial with Archie and we don't get uh, this phone call. Now I'm sure Kirsten is going to talk about how like, oh, I'm glad we didn't see these because those scenes would have been boring and she hates that kind of stuff anyway. But you know, I just think it's like not great writing to not even show them. Maybe 
maybe they're not using the Hermosa actress anymore, but we didn't even like hear her voice on the phone. I don't know. So they get the palladium from Hiram's office, which he has hidden under some of the houses in his like giant diagram of Sodale, which I know we've talked about and we debated in the last couple episodes, but like I was still under the impression that Sodale like kind of existed. Like there was the prison. I thought they were building housing there, but now it seems like it just completely doesn't exist. So I don't know. So they get it and they're going to smelt it down. They're going to turn it into like, I think, what did she say? Like, it's like Spanish doubloons or something. I'm probably getting that wrong. So the idea is that she's going to get Cheryl's help because she gives Cheryl some more spider brooches and they're going to say that the palladium came from her mines. So this is what's confusing to me about the auction is like, why don't you just get the palladium like from, if, if you're saying that it's from Cheryl's mines, like why do you need to, I guess you, you can't just like sell straight up palladium at an auction. So she had to smelt it down to make it look like Spanish doubloons. But like, it's not like we see Veronica thinking like, ooh, what could I turn it into? She's like, I got it. I'm going to turn it into Spanish doubloons. But she's like saying that as if it's like some big like collector's item. Like, oh, you'll want these authentic, but they're not authentic because it's being widely known that they're made from palladium that was just mined in Cheryl's mines. So none of this really makes any sense at all, but whatever. They have the auction, Hiram's there, and Veronica gives the bid to someone else, doesn't even let him, like he's waving his paddle around, but she's not, she's ignoring it. And then he calls her out for this and is like, why didn't you sell it to me? It seems like you're just trying to be spiteful. And she's like, that's exactly what I did. Why? You need the money. Just let, I mean, it's his own palladium. Let him buy it back. I guess maybe the risk is that he, if he buys it back, like maybe she knows that he's just not good for the money. I mean, it's unclear like how much money, if any, Hiram actually has at this moment. I, I mean, he has a rum business. He has all his like crime lord stuff. I'm assuming he made at least some money from the prison, but it seems like he's having to like swindle all these investors. So what money does he actually have? I'm unclear about that. So maybe the idea is like she doesn't want to sell it to him in case he like can't actually give her the money or in case he like tries to get the money back after he finds out it's his own palladium. Whereas if she sells it to this other guy and Hiram wants it back, he has to like go get it from the other guy. I don't know, but whatever. She ends up selling this tiny bit of palladium and gets back. I think she said $300,000. So, you know, chunk of change. That sounds pretty good. I still have no clue how much palladium is worth. Like I know we looked it up and it was a lot, but like for the size that they keep showing, which is like, I don't know, roughly the size of two pieces of gravel or something. It's, it just seems like a lot, but okay, whatever. So Chad's going to call again and tell her about copter cabs. That was his big get rich quick scheme. And they're going to have a launch party tonight. So copter cabs, <laughs> she says, is, is that like you can rent a helicopter. It's basically like Uber for rich people, but they get a helicopter and it like takes them to the Martha's Vineyard of this world, which is Marsha's Vineyard, which unfortunately we already had on our close window cigars. So we don't get to have a new one there. But she's like, yeah, I'll go to the launch party, which she tells Reggie is behind some kind of big plan that's going to take Chad down and maybe also hurt Hiram as well. So she goes to the party and distracts all the guys who are there by bringing a bunch of women who are dressed up in hot pink flight attendant uniforms and they all have champagne and jingle jangle, but we don't really get to like see a ton of the partying. And then all of a sudden, as she's talking to Chad, Copter Cab's stock starts crashing and we find out that apparently the helicopter crash that Chad and Veronica got in before was not public knowledge. And so Veronica leaked that information. And I guess it looks really bad for someone who's creating a helicopter business to have also crashed a helicopter on his own, which I, I guess I forgot the fact that like Chad was flying it himself. But I feel like this would be bad, but I just don't think it's would like 
tank the stock in that way. So I think that it's like a really dumb thing that they're like, the stock is plummeting right now. Look at the stock, it's going down. And I do think it would go down. I just don't think it would go down that much because someone found out that he like crashed a helicopter. What do I know? I've never bought stock in anything. Certainly haven't looked that closely. And I don't know why Veronica like thinks that this was a good idea because she tipped off the people. And I'm, I'm sure that we're gonna find out next episode that like somehow her name was also tied into the copter cab's stock and he's just gonna try to like hold this over her head as well. Like get out, get an actual divorce and then do whatever you want to Chad. This was so pointless. Like why did you need to take Chad down for no reason? Like even if you wanna divorce him and you don't like him, like let him make his own money. It's, it's no sweat off your back. I don't know why she needs to do this, but she's like, just calls him a beta and then tips off her dad that she stole his palladium, which we find out that he is like gonna like look under his house and then crunch up the piece of, I don't know what they used, styrofoam or something and painted it like silver to make it look like palladium. So Veronica just up to her old tricks. She cannot help herself. She's like the worst kind of like movie villain where she just outs herself at every moment. Get what you want, get out of your divorce, like have a business and then take Hiram and Chad down. She does everything out of order and it's so frustrating. And that was the Veronica plot. Okay, so now I want to move into the Veronica plot line, which I have named Veronica slash money. So Chad is like, I have a new company. It's going public and we can pay everyone back. Isn't this great news? Uh, and I wrote, oh, he's definitely working with Hiram, isn't he? And Veronica's like, no, like you can't do anything right. I'm going to be able to pay everyone back in a month. It doesn't even matter. Like, no thanks. Smash cut to her at Pearl and Posh, which she also told Chad the name of her like brokerage, which I think was not a good idea. And now we have confirmation that the books at her company are not good. She is certainly doing illegal activity because she gets a call from the SEC because Chad called them that they want to go through her books and it, it's not good. So rough, rough time. But Veronica says that she would rather go to white collar prison than ask Chad for help, which is fair. But she's like, whoa, my dad has a bunch of palladium. If I get the palladium and sell the palladium, I can pay everyone back and then my books will look good and then the SEC won't catch me. She's like done some fraud and now she's going to do some fraud while she does some fraud. And I think that's the first rule of being a criminal is that you aren't supposed to do a crime while you're doing a crime. But now she's layering the crime. So I don't think this will end well. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow. There's gonna be a problem. So we find out that Reggie and Hermosa had had a thing in the past and Reggie calls up Hermosa and finds out where Hiram's palladium is kept. They have to give her a cut of the profits, of course, but they now know where the palladium is, which I feel like they already knew because didn't they try to get it out of a safe with the prisoners? Or I guess he had to hide it again since then. Whatever. So they decide to cement the palladium into Spanish doubloons to sell which I think is a truly inspired and hilarious choice. Why a doubloon? Like what? But she bribes Cheryl with a spider brooch so that Cheryl will endorse that the palladium came from her mines and for her to help get like rich people to go to this auction. Hiram has crashed the auction. He was not invited to it and he keeps trying to bid on the palladium, but Veronica's ignoring him and will not take his bids. And after the auction is over, she's like, he's like, seriously, like you won't let me pay more for the palladium? because you don't want me to have it? Like that would be petty and ridiculous. And she's like, well, that's exactly the case. That That's exactly right. I am petty and ridiculous. But I think it would have been really funny if she sold Hiram his own palladium. And then he goes to like add more models to his thing and he finds out that his are gone. And he just like got totally cheated. I guess you don't want to piss off Hiram though either because he'll he'll come for you. But he's going to be mad anyways. So it's not, it's not a great decision. But I laughed really hard. She wouldn't let him have it. She also gets another call from Chad who's 
like, yo, I heard about your auction. Hate to see you so desperate for money. You should just take my money. And he's like, she's like, no, I've already paid everyone back. Everything is good. My books look good. Like the SEC won't come for me, you know? What I love about this is that Veronica has a habit, I don't know if we've called it out before or not, of closing her laptop to end a video call. And it is such big flip phone energy that I, I do truly love to see it. Chad's little company that he's been working on is called Copter Cab. And it is helicopters that take rich people to and from uh, Marsha's Vineyard to, to parties. So that set off alarm bells because I feel like Chad has a history with uh, copters and Marsha's Vineyard. But you know, it's fine. Franca's gonna go to the party. And Reggie's like, yo, why are you going to the party? Why are you hanging out with that trash man? And she's like, uh, I'm trying to go on the offensive. And then my next note was, they're gonna say, well, she wolf of wall street this episode aren't they like they're gonna do it i didn't want them to do it and spoiler alert they didn't do it but i really thought they were going to so she goes to the copter cab party and she shows up with like eight girls in like all pink outfits with briefcases she calls them good time girls and they've got jingle jangle and champagne and there's literally like more women than there are people at this party because the whole party is chad hiram and like four other strangers we've never heard of and so copter cab is going public they're gonna make so much money but they won't because Veronica was there to distract them with the good time girls. She leaked a story to the Walby Journal about how uh, Chad had been in a helicopter accident and had covered it up and is now part of this company. And people are like, whoa, that's sketchy. So the, the stocks are tanking and we find out because one of the finance bros is like, my boysenberry is <laughs> blowing up. So that was, it was too close but no cigars in quick succession, which I was very excited to see. But Veronica takes this opportunity to call Chad out. She says, you'll never be an alpha, Chad. You're a born beta. And I really don't know why Veronica is using like Reddit incel verbiage, but it's what she's doing. And I suppose I have to respect her decisions because she's like a fancy finance lady who saved the day and got revenge on everyone. She's like, and you too, daddy, like you're ruined too. And Hiram's like, yo, Veronica, I only invested a modest sum. So I'm going to be fine, but thanks. And she's like, oh, go look at your Sodale model and you'll find you've lost more than you realize. And so like dumb me, I thought that the Sodale model was like, I don't know, like a spreadsheet with modeling and financial forecasting. Uh, but no, she meant like the literal model of what Sodale is quote unquote supposed to look like when it's done, because I guess that's where he was hiding his palladium and he is mad. He lost the palladium and he is mad. An idiot, a whole idiot. Why are you hiding it in plain sight? Stupid. Stupid. Just stupid. Okay, well, I'm really flying through. I, honestly, here's what I've learned. When I don't have anyone to distract slash distract me, I can just fly through the content. I feel like that's not what you're here for. But again, Mary chose to run a marathon this week. So this is, this is what we have. I'm really sorry about it. And for our final plotline, Books and Booze is the somewhat Betty Jughead plotline, but really mostly Jughead, tiny bit of Tabitha. There's not there's really not that much Betty in this one. And I thought there was going to be because there were several clips from her scenes that had been in the promo for this episode. But that was really it. Like basically everything you see in the promo is what you got in this episode. So Jughead's still going to his AA meetings and he is now seven days sober. Good for him. And he says that he's supposed to go 
through his steps and one of the steps is to apologize to people. This is, like I said, like, exactly like a fanfiction I read, except in that fanfiction he was like two years sober and he was doing a much better job apologizing. But he's like, okay, first I should go apologize to Betty. And so he goes to the Cooper household, but Alice tells him that she's not there because Betty is out working the lonely highway, which I think that Jughead is supposed to be kind of worried for her doing this. It's clearly a very dangerous thing that she's doing, but I don't know that the emotion just like wasn't conveyed properly. Like I am, like I said, I'm on the West Coast and I flew here. And so on my plane, I was watching part of Five Feet Apart. And I just like, I, I feel like Cole Sprouse did a really good job with a lot of his like emotional acting in that movie. And I just feel like he's dropping the ball here. And also Betty, there were several moments and, and usually they're very good together, at least with the emotional stuff, in my opinion. And I just felt like it was not conveyed at all that he felt like he was saying he was nervous for her and worried for her, but I just didn't, I didn't feel like that was coming across in his acting. And maybe it's because he's also battling this alcoholism and he has like, you know, two tracks in his mind that are sort of not allowing him to fully concentrate on his worry for her. But I'm not really sure. I'm not an expert on addiction, so I don't really know how that works. But that's the only thing I could think of like story-wise for why he might not be able to convey his emotions better. I'm sure that Kirsten's going to say I'm overanalyzing this and that the actors are probably just over it <laughs> and like don't care that much. But you know, I don't want to take the easy way out. I'm trying to, I'm trying to break down the show. You know, I'm trying to use my expertise here to figure it out. But anyway, he continues on with his apologizing and he goes to talk to Principal Weatherby and apologizes for being gone. And Principal Weatherby says that he is now going to be on administrative leave because he missed so much teaching, which I get, but also isn't Riverdale High like really struggling to find a teacher? Can they just like not have an English teacher for weeks? I mean, apparently he was gone for several weeks, but you would think like the punishment should be, okay, you got to come back and teach even more. I mean, I know that's not how it works job wise, but I feel like this is a special circumstance. So they're like in desperate need of teachers. So then Jughead gets a call from Sam Pansky again. And Sam's like, look, if you don't send me pages by the end of the day, this is your last chance and you'll be blackballed and your career will be over. To which I just still don't really understand. I guess just Jughead doesn't have any inspiration or ideas, but like, why not just write some pages if he just needs like 10 pages? Like, don't get me wrong. I know writing is much harder than that. And most people can't just churn some out in that day, but there's been plenty of times where I've written a 20 page paper or whatever the night before it was due. Like it is possible. He could have spent all day trying to come up with something or write a short story or at least the idea of one or some kind of outline and sent it to him. But he doesn't do that, of course, because it's Jughead. So he goes to apologize to Tabitha, but she apologizes to him as well for not watching him better while he was tripping, which okay, because I guess she agreed to do that. But also I feel like she should have like, yeah, it's my fault that I even let you trip in the first place, I guess is what I would have hoped she could have said something more like that. So he asks her where his book is and she tells him that Betty gave it to Jessica because it seemed like a good idea at the time. And he's a little bit upset about this, but I guess it's understandable given who Jessica is. So at first he contemplates going to Jessica to try and get it back, although my guess is that she's, you know, burned it or destroyed it at this point. But Tabitha advises him not to go to Jessica because he needs to concentrate on his sobriety. And so he shouldn't go to Jessica since she has also been an enabler of him in the past. She also tells him not to write at the moment if it's stressing him out so much because, again, he needs to concentrate on his health. So really, Tabitha just like being a really realistic and better person here for that. But finally, and I really, I don't believe that the writers of the show, I'm sorry, I don't have faith 
faith. I really don't believe that they thought about this from the start, from the first episode when they had Cora Carter come in with her novel and give it to Jughead to read. I think they didn't know what they were going to do with that plot at the time when they wrote it, but the novel comes back because Jughead's like, oh, that's right. I have her book and I could just use that and tell Sam that that's my writing. And he also finds a bottle of whiskey stored in his trunk where he had her novel. So he's going to read the book and apparently it's pretty good. So he rips the cover off that had Cora's name on it and sends it to Sam. He also starts drinking some of the whiskey and then texts Betty that he wants to have a talk with her, invites her to the bunker the next day. Meanwhile, while they're showing this texting conversation, Betty has come back from where she's been working the Lonely Highway. So Betty's whole deal is that she's decided to just dress up like her sister used to when she worked, uh, I guess. Uh, was she, I can't remember, was her sister a stripper? Or was she just like a waitress? I can't remember. But she's sort of dressing up um, a little bit and just walking down the highway, like trying to hitchhike. And so that's what Betty's been doing during the evenings, trying to find the trucker killer. Also, I feel like the trucker killer, we could do some better branding on that. The naming is not particularly good. But so she's been doing that. And so she had a lot of lipstick on and she just like wipes her lipstick off the back of her hands where it smears all across her face. It's like the most absurd, I don't know, way possible. I guess it, maybe it was supposed to be like an homage to in back in like the first couple episodes of the first season where she put some red lipstick on her mom came and just like rubbed it off and I was like that's not how you get rid of lipstick but okay so she goes to the bunker the next day to talk to Jughead and he's like hey is it safe for you to be walking the lonely highway pretending to be Polly and she's like probably not Jughead but I'm running out of ideas which I thought was just really on the nose and kind of funny maybe I need to rewatch it I'll admit I actually hit some kind of button on my computer that made the video go like in two times speed so I kept having to pause it to like figure out what was happening it was going so fast maybe that's why it felt like their acting was really stilted and like not emotional just seemed like two zombies talking to each other but yeah I, I feel like she just kind of staring off into space like he apologizes for the voicemail he sent her and tells her that he's an alcoholic which is apparent even as he is literally sitting there still drinking while he's talking to her I believe she's also drinking it's unclear because she's drinking out of like a camp mug like a copper mug or something or a steel mug while he is drinking out of like a whiskey glass so it's hard to tell if she's also drinking I, I like half thought that maybe the plot twist was going to be like oh he's been drinking out of this glass but he's not actually drinking the whiskey but that wasn't the case he just was drinking again and so I feel like this was a really emotional like should have been a really emotional conversation like he is opening up and telling her that he's an alcoholic and she's just kind of like yeah now about me though like I totally identify because I have had a problem with being like having having a compulsion towards hunting serial killers so she it like just completely ignores the fact that he's been an alcoholic and just goes and starts talking about herself. So I'm not saying that she needs to be comforting her ex, especially since he sent her that horrible voicemail, but it just seems a little out of character for her to just not care at all. But yeah, she says that she has felt a void all throughout college. She was trying to be normal, but since she has that compulsion towards hunting serial killers, she now feels like she's more comfortable studying serial killers than socializing with normal people. And she tells him that that's why she wasn't at his book release party because she got an offer that night to work on the trash bag killer task force, which... <laughs> 
I think also doesn't make sense because like with the timeline, the timeline, I know Kirsten's gonna get mad about this too. Okay, if you remember in the phone call, he says seven years, which isn't correct. I think at the most it could have been five years or something. But then she says, why are you apologizing for something you did half a decade ago? Which would mean that he would have called her five years ago. So it should have only been two years on the phone call. It's very confusing because she also says though, that she wasn't able to go to his thing because she was getting put on this task force, which means she must have already graduated college and already been working at Quantico at the time, which would have had to have been at least four years post time jump, which means it could have only max been three years ago. So the timeline makes no sense. Uh, I would really love to chart out like where they're all supposed to be during this <laughs> cell phone call. But like, we saw that when he sent her the message, he said that it had been seven years since he had, uh, you know, seen her, which would have been basically very shortly before the start of this season. But that doesn't make any sense because it didn't take him that long to write the art, the novel. Plus he said that he had written the novel to, I guess, like Kirsten believes in his first year of college. <laughs> I don't know. It, none of this makes any sense. And it's uh, a horrible mess. And they just like can't do very simple time lighting for a TV show. I just feel like if I was making a TV show, I would just chart out like, what are the big events? Where was everyone at this time? But instead, they're just playing super fast and loose with it. And I mean, at the very least, the one thing that they could have done to fix this would have been not have him say seven years in the phone call, say like five years. But then at this point here in this conversation, she would have had to say like, oh, why did it take you two years to apologize? I'm going to go with I'm still like in my own universe. I'm saying that the book release party was five years after they left Riverdale. So it would have been like one year year post-college, even or, you know, more so if Jughead actually didn't finish college, that would have been roughly the time that Betty had been at Quantico for like a year, and it would have only been two years ago. That's my timeline, even though that's not clear that that's actually what's happening. I'm going with it. I'm putting my foot down. That's where it is. Ugh. Also, I was a little upset that Betty didn't go ahead and open up more fully with him and say, like, talk about the fact, like, this feels like a good opening for her to have also said, like, part of the reason I'm obsessed with catching serial killers is because I was captured by one. Like, I know it's a really deep thing to talk about, but it just felt like it was a good time. They were alone. Could have done it, but she didn't. And during this whole conversation, Sam's going to call again, tell Jughead that he loved the book, but Jughead caves really quickly, tells him it's not him, and he hasn't written anything. So his conscience just caught up with him real fast, like within a couple hours. So Sam's like, oh, I'm really sorry, kid. I'm gonna, I know you're going through personal stuff, but I'm going to have to drop you as a client. And he's like, okay, understandable. And he's going to send Sam Cora's contact info. So that was nice of him. At least she'll get a book out of this, I guess. And then uh, Tabitha talks to Jughead at the end of the episode, says, he says that he's worried about Betty walking the lonely highway. And she's like, I'm going to take care of that. You need to concentrate on you for a while. Promise that you'll still go to your meetings. And then at the very end, we see that he is at his AA meeting and Betty is getting ready to go out on the highway, but Tabitha joins her and Jughead in voiceover says that he has a bad feeling about what's going to happen next. So I did check out the promo for the next episode and I don't really think they showed like any clips of the highway stuff. So not sure if anything's actually going to happen in that plot line. I mean, they don't always spoil everything, but a lot of the stuff seemed to be more about like the, the mining and potentially even the Mothman plots. So I guess we'll circle back to that, which is awesome. 
So Jughead's whole thing this episode is that he is he is in AA, he is doing the 12 steps, and he is at the part where you make amends. So I guess he has already taken a searching uh, moral inventory of himself. I was just talking about AA on BoJack HorsePod literally last week. So the synergy is here, you know? So the episode starts with Jughead at an AA meeting. He's seven days sober. It seems like things are, are going well for him already, but he's he's ready to do his apology tour and make amends. So... I guess, yeah, he's done his searching moral inventory. He's admitted where he's wrong and now he needs to go make amends with the people that he can. And he decides to make amends with Betty first. So he goes to the house and Alice is there. Jughead has no hat on, which is still so strange to me. And Alice is like, sorry, she's probably working on the lonely highway. Uh, I don't know. And Jughead's like, okay, that's weird. But then we see a clip of Betty and she's like in a fur coat, like hitchhiking alone in the dark. And it's like, oh, Betty, no, like baby girl, you're in danger. Like, don't do this. We also get Jughead talking to Principal Weatherby and Weatherby's like, you've been gone for weeks. You didn't arrange a sub. You didn't call in sick. You're on administrative leave. And I just would like to know, like, is he getting paid or no? Because if he's on administrative leave with pay, this is a sweet deal for Jughead. And that honestly, best case scenario, you don't have to teach and you're getting paid. You love to see it. He also has like a running thing this episode where his agent Sam keeps calling him to say like, you've got to turn in pages today or like your career is over. Like you will not be a writer, like figure it out. And he He's like, oh, bet. Don't worry. I wrote a whole manuscript when I was high. So he goes to Tabitha. And before Jughead can say anything, Tabitha actually apologizes to Jughead for not watching him when he was on the mushrooms, which is a very nice thing to do. But Jughead is right to say, hey, I should not have put you in that situation. Like, I'm sorry. And he's like, I hate to do this, but like, I feel like when I was high, I wrote a novel. So where is it? And Tabitha has to tell him that Jessica has it. And he's kind of spiraling. So he goes into the bunker and he's got alcohol and he's got that girl's novel from the the first episode of the time jump and he it seems is gonna steal it and it, he's got the full triangle of fraud you know he's got the opportunity to steal the book he's under pressure to put in a book and he can rationalize it like hey well she gave it to me to give to the agent so like i could just put it in my name it's fun so sketchy stuff there's a lot of fraud in this episode i feel like so not good Jughead but he also gets Betty uh, down into the bunker they were text messaging at one point but I could not read what their texts say and I don't know if I was supposed to read what their texts say so hopefully Mary um, paused the screen and was able to tell you about their texts because I I can't provide that information but she like tells him about how she dresses like Polly and hitchhikes he's like is it safe and she's like well probably not which like yeah duh there's serial killers out there but he wants to take this opportunity to apologize for the voicemail he doesn't really remember it but it was horrible and he's really sorry. And Betty's like, why now? After half a decade, which is just another example of the timeline not working out. So his book definitely came out when she would have been in her second year of college. So it's very strange that he like fully dropped out of school to go do this. And he's like, well, it's one of my steps. I'm in recovery, blah, blah, blah. But the reason why she missed the party was that she had been asked to be on the trash bag killer task force, which means she was already in the FBI when she had been out of high school for two years. So when once again, the time, the math is not mathing. Like we've got a problem here because she should have still been in her undergrad at Yale, not in Quantico at all, let alone being asked to be on a task force. Like she should just be like still in training now. Like she, like it doesn't make any sense. But this is where B Betty's like, oh, I'm also an addict because she's like compulsively hunt serial killers. And I liked, uh, Jughead had a line here, classic Cooper. You solve like eight mysteries in 
high school and you were still valedictorian, which still doesn't make any sense. She says she's more comfortable studying serial killers than socializing with normal people and like, girl, same. Uh, me too. Jughead's like, you gotta take a break. And she's like, I can't. And this is where Jughead gets a call from Sam about this new book. It's incredible. And Jughead is honest, too honest. He tells Sam the truth. He stole the book. He's a plagiarizer. Sam is furious about it and is like, I gotta drop you as a client. He says, you're a good writer, kid. I hope you can pull it together. And Jughead's like, let me send you Cora's info. I'm sure she'll be thrilled. So Cora's gonna get a published book out of this. I feel like we thought that there was gonna be something a lot more nefarious about Cora, but I guess it's just nothing. I guess she just had sex with Jughead one time and left her manuscript and now is gonna be a, a published author and probably successful. I don't know. So Jughead goes to work at Pops and he's really distracted. He's not a good busboy. He is drunk. He's worried about Betty. Tabitha's worried about him because she smelled booze on his breath. And he's like, yeah, I had a backslide. And she's like, well, I just promise me, promise me you'll worry about yourself. Promise me you'll keep going to meetings. And she's like, I will take care of Betty because Jughead's like, she's out there alone on the lonely highway. Tabitha's like, I'll take care of her. And I would like to know how she is planning to do so because they already had a whole thing where she would like be on dispatch and like watch out for for Betty. And now she's just doing nothing because she doesn't know because Betty didn't tell her. So at the end of the episode, Betty like tugs Allison on the couch. She's sleeping on the couch. She opens the door and Tabitha's there. Tabitha knows what Betty has been doing and she is going to help. She is going to go with her and her help is non-optional. And again, I just don't understand why she's not doing the dispatch thing again because that was an option that they had that was working because now it's just like they could both get murdered. And I feel like you got to have one person outside of it, you know? And then the episode ends with Jughead back at an AA meeting. He says, I was seven days sober, but now I'm back to one. I hope to get to eight days this time. But tonight I'm actually really worried about two friends. I'm trying not to worry about the things I cannot change, but I have got a really bad feeling about what happens next. And the episode ends with Betty and Tabitha on the lonely highway alone and Jughead has a bad feeling about it. So not good not a good situation. I feel like everyone's in a bad spot. I did not hate the episode. I just felt like a lot happened and I would have rather honestly not had the Josie and the Pussycats like backdoor pilot and would have rather had this be two episodes worth of material for the Jughead and Betty of it all. Like I, I feel like more time to breathe would have been a really good spot to do it in. Okay, and now let's have some thoughts and questions from our listeners. So Zev is here, and Zev says, Archie, I'll make sure I get consent from the platoon's loved ones. And then just the gift from the office <laughs> that has Michael talking to Tony saying, what gives you the right? Which was in response to like what the, the first loved one basically told him. Although, I don't know, I guess, look, I have not lost a loved one to the military, but I feel like... <sighs> I feel like I would not put up a fight if someone was like, hey, I'm going to like get some more respect for your loved one's unjust death. I don't know. That's a really hard situation, so I'm not really sure. Zev says, I definitely didn't see that interaction going in favor of Archie based on the way they left that. Is that just me? I don't know. I mean, I guess like they just kind of wanted to tie up this plot line. Like I, I thought it was going to be a bigger thing too. I think this was kind of all just very pointless. Like I said, like I think it has more to do with Archie's conscience and his uh, trauma that he's been through and this was 
was more so to do that, but sort of like through the lens of I'm also going to help other people. So I was surprised that the verdict ended up being so favorable for Archie. And I, I feel like that's probably the end of the whole PTSD army plotline, probably. And we're going to move back toward the like mining stuff, but we'll see. Maybe it'll get brought up again. Zev also says, how close do you think all these people were to Riverdale? All the people that Archie visited. I, like that doesn't make any sense because this is the army. They could have been from anywhere. I mean, I guess we only saw him visit three people. So I'm assuming maybe these were just the three closest people to him and that they could have, I mean, maybe all been in New York. It's not unheard of to like drive to other states. I certainly, you know, have done that multiple times, but I probably wouldn't have gone more than like one state away to talk to people. But I guess it just depends how much drive he has. We also don't really know, like Archie has all these other jobs, but we don't really care about the timeline, like in the day to day, like we have not seen him being a teacher for a long time. Although in the previous episode, we did see him talking with the ROTC class, despite the fact that in the episode before that, the therapist literally told him not to be around any people at the moment. So I don't know, like we just we just don't know like when he has time. Is this the weekend? Like When does he have time to be going and talking to all these people? I don't know. So Band of Brothers is the title of this episode. Now, my curiosity is if Mary's ever seen Band of Brothers. I have. It's a very good like mini series about the war, but my guess is that Mary has never heard of it before. So lock I'm locking in that prediction. And it was a 2001 American war drama miniseries based on Stephen Ambrose's 1992 nonfiction book by the same name. It was created by Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks, who also served as executive producers and who had collaborated on Saving Private Ryan. I have never watched Band of Brothers, but that seems like a pretty apt name for at least Archie's plotline here. It's really good. Like war stuff normally makes me very upset um, just because my dad was in the military and so I can kind of imagine him there. But the whole storyline covers a regiment and division from their whole training in 1942 to the end of World War II. It's really interesting. It's You'll cry a lot, but it's really good. And I think people should consider watching it if they haven't before. It's an interesting uh, World War II story. We got several more closed window cigars. Somebody tell me if Brave and True is anything. So that one's like a tentative right now. I'm not sure about the newspaper. But we do have boysenberries, which I think was my favorite and made me laugh out loud because <laughs> instead of a blackberry phone, a boysenberry. Oh, so good. Loved it. I feel like they could have just gone with like blueberry or raspberry, but they went full boysenberry and it made me very so happy. And then the Wall Beat Journal. Now, why are we calling it the Wall Beat Journal when Veronica has already said multiple times the she-wolf on Wall Street. It's not like Wall Street isn't a thing, but why did we just switch over to the Wall Beat Journal? So that one was horrible. Iconic. Two iconic ones. Okay, this one's gonna be a little tricky since Kirsten and I are recording this separately, so we'll just have to see what comes up. But for most normal person of loose week, I know it's happened before. Last time was episode 11 of this season, but I'm personally gonna give it to Tabitha. I think that Tabitha really only having care to support other people in this episode, Jughead just continually reminding him that he needs to concentrate on his sobriety. And then even at the end, I know that Kirsten may not give it to Tabitha saying that no one can be the most normal person and still think that walking the lonely highway is a good idea. But I don't think that Tabitha thinks it's a good idea. I think she's just doing it to protect Betty. So I'm going to give it to Tabitha this week. 
I'm going to put my vote for the most normal person to be Sam, Jughead's editor, because he's like, kid, do your job. And then when the kid does a bad job, he gets fired for it. And I feel like that is very normal. Although I would get put Jughead in a runner up spot because I feel like though he's had a lot going on, I do kind of feel like his trajectory in this episode was not like completely unrealistic, even though everyone else around him was in unrealistic situations. So those are my two votes. We'll see what Mary has to say and and we'll see if she she's willing to to agree with me or disagree or, or whatever. Okay, and that's all for me. I don't know if this is exactly going to be the end of the episode. Not sure how I'm going to splice Kirsten in. We'll find out. But that's all for this week for the Mary side of things. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for bearing with this weird format and my not as great audio this week. We'll be back next time for episode 17. Until then, you can follow me online at Frail Mary on every platform and follow KowskiCast on Twitter and Instagram at KowskiCast. That's cow with a K. You can also go to KowskiCast.com. That's cow with a K to check out everything we have going on there right now. That is it. That is the episode. Next week is going to be season five, episode 17 of Riverdale, which is going to be called Dance of Death. So that looks scary. So Mary and I will be back together to talk about that one. Um, You can leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes and then we'll read it out loud and it'll make us like feel a lot better about what we're doing here. Tell us if you like the split episode. I don't think we'll be doing it again, but you know, it's nice to have it in the back pocket just in case. And you can also follow me everywhere at Kirsten Said What on Twitch, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, everywhere. Again, that's Kirsten Said What. And you can listen to my weekly BoJack Horseman rewatch podcast, BoJack Horsepot, with myself and the great Lindsay Wilson. I was also recently on a Big Brother recap over on Rob Has a Podcast. And I'm going to be on the second batch of Circle USA Season 3 episode recap on Rob Has a Podcast actually on well today when I'm recording it but I don't know when this is gonna drop so it should be the most recent circle recap once this comes out until next time thank you all for joining us bye She's like done some fraud and now she's going to do some fraud while she does some fraud. And I think that's the first rule of being a criminal is that you aren't supposed to do a crime while you're doing a crime. But now she's layering the crimes.